Pray with me. Father, it's by your spirit that you have promised to illuminate truth to us. And so at this moment, that is my prayer. Holy Spirit, would you preside over the words that are being preached this morning, over the scriptures that are being read, and would you illuminate the truth as you would intend for us to understand it? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear these words, a discerning heart to understand what they mean, and then the courage to apply these things in our lives. So we pray this for the glory of Christ and for the betterment of his church. In his name I pray. Amen. You've all heard the term divide and conquer, but my guess is you don't know the origin of that phrase. There was a king of Assyria around 1300 B.C. His name was Tukulti Ninurta. And he used that strategy, divide and conquer, to defeat Babylon. Babylon. In modern times, we're more familiar with terms like shock and awe. It was a term used to describe the rapid domination and to create this sort of state of, of helplessness and hopelessness or lack of will during the invasion of Iraq in 1996. But could you ever imagine that painted balloons, piles of canvas, wood, and chicken wire would help win a war? Well, it actually did. Here's how the story goes. Early in World War II, British commanders realized that they were outgunned by the German army. They also determined that a massive surprise attack would be necessary to defeat the enemy. To help conceal their weakness and achieve the element of surprise, the Allied army created an elaborate system of camouflage and decoys. Carpenters, artists, and painters built a fleet of ships, aircraft, guns, and airfields, all from lumber, canvas, plaster, and yes, chicken wire. They also made scores of life-size inflatable tanks, complete with gun turrets and authentic paint schemes. Decoy airfields had working lights, ships had working smokestacks, and floating troop carriers even had crew laundry hanging on the deck to dry. Once complete, the decoys were placed away from key targets so that enemy planes would spot them, report them, and attack them rather than the targets of real value. Well, the goal then was to deplete the arsenal that uh, to deplete the arsenal of these bombs and leave themselves less protected. And they had wasted tons of bombs on fake targets. The strategy was simple. It was a psychological strategy. Feed the enemy a steady stream of false information that would actually conceal the truth and point to false targets, false pictures. Well, church, our enemy, the devil, uses a similar strategy, not with balloons, wood or chicken wire, but with false teaching, subtle false teaching. Add to that the lack of discernment and you have a recipe for disaster in the church because the biggest problem in the church is not persecution. It's lack of discernment. Discernment is the ability to judge well, the the ability to judge between right and wrong. And sadly, in our present age, the church is failing miserably. I want to read our text for this morning. It's, It's a brief one. It's in 1 Thessalonians 5. 
It begins in verse 21. It says this, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every evil. Three commands, three simple commands. Examine, hold fast and to abstain. These are commands that are related to this characteristic, this quality of discernment. So discernment is it's commended in the scriptures, but it's also commanded as well. Throughout the Bible, we see this Solomon prayed in first Kings chapter three. He says, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. And then Solomon writing in Proverbs chapter two says, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And then Paul writing to Timothy says this in first Timothy chapter four. But the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy and liars searing in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer in pointing out these things to the brethren. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. So he says those who lack discernment, they are prey to deceitful spirits. They are prey to doctrines of demons. Pretty serious result. And then Paul closes out this letter in chapter six and says, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. And then, of course, maybe the most familiar of all verses regarding discernment is found in Acts chapter 17. It says, now these, referring to the Bereans, were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And there's literally dozens uh, of other verses that say the same thing. So why, why then does the Bible speak so much about this? Why is there so much in the scriptures? Because you know, like I know, that error creeps into the church through false teachers. This is the avenue. They are the emissaries of the devil. It is his choice weapon to destroy the church. Listen, from the inside not the outside. In Paul's farewell address to the elders in Ephesus, he warned of this. He says this in Acts chapter 20. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after him. This is the wartime strategy of 
our enemy, our arch enemy, to deceive the church. And he's been doing this since Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said? Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And so the tactic is to get the believer, even the unbeliever, to doubt the word of God. And you know what? It's working. It's working. How else do you explain ideologies that have crept into the church, like critical race theory, whose whole premise is based on showing partiality, the very thing that James forbids? Or female pastors who insist that God has gifted them to that position? Or the term same-sex attracted Christians? How is it? How is it they have made their way into the church? Well, I think the explanation is simple. The church has lost its ability to discern. It, is no, it no longer judges well. Now, I want to look at our text really just briefly this morning. This is going to be more of a topical message than it will be sort of expositional like maybe we're used to. But let's look at the text again. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 21. Paul says, examine everything. Examine everything. So that he's, he's telling us to test or to approve everything. It's often used of the idea of testing by fire. In Proverbs 25, it says, Take away the dross from silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. So this is the idea of it. It's the idea of, of heating uh, a substance, silver in this case, to the temperature where it melts and then the dross, which is on the top, is scraped off and that process is repeated until there is pure dross. This is the idea of examination and, and testing. And then, of course, in James chapter 1, consider it all joy, he says, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So, Paul says, we are to examine everything and to test everything. But what's he talking about? What's everything? What is it exactly we are to be examining? Well, to get the answer to that, you really just have to back up a couple verses in the text. In verse 19, it says this, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. This is not really a command to hold fast to good behavior or even good thoughts. This is about prophetic utterances. That's what he's talking about. In other words, it's examining preaching. It's examining the teaching. And you say, well, how much of it? He says all of it. Everything. Examine everything carefully. Now, carefully is not actually in the text. It was inserted by translators. But it is implied. If you examine something or you test something, it implies a careful examination. And then he says, hold fast. It's actually one word in the Greek. It means to continually possess something, to hold fast. But it has a little preposition that's added to the front of that word. The preposition is kata, which implies this intense possession of something. We would say it like this. That person has a death grip on it. That's the idea behind this. We're to hold fast. We're to have this death grip 
on truth, a death grip on everything good. Now, the law is good. Certain deeds are good. No question about that. But here he is referring to the preached and the taught word. That's the idea. And so there are two positive commands then. He says, examine everything. That's the teaching. Hold fast to every good teaching. Those are positive commands. But he gives us a negative one also. And he says, abstain from every form of evil. Now, you understand that word. You know what abstain means. Abstain means to hold back, to hold off, to to keep your distance from. That's the idea of it. Abstain from every form of evil. Same word actually used in verse 21 for everything. So abstain from everything that looks like evil. So we're to test it. We're to hold fast to everything and then abstain from the evil. Now, again, you know what this word means, abstinence. There's no such thing as partial abstinence. That's an oxymoron, right? You can't have that. Abstinence is complete abstinence is what it means. Oxymorons like deafening silence. There is no such thing as partial abstinence. It's interesting. The word oxymoron actually comes from two words itself, two opposite words. And the words are oxus, which means sharp, and moron, which means dull. So even the word itself is an opposite word. At any rate, abstinence means completely holding back from every form of evil. So anything that looks like it, anything that smells like it, anything that has the appearance of it, he says, abstain from it. Run from it. And although it can refer to any kind of evil, here it has the reference to what? Prophetic utterances. Prophetic utterances. In other words, again, preached and taught, the preached and taught word. So Paul's not saying don't covet and don't steal. Those are true. Those are true statements. But here it's not referring to that. He has in mind here the idea of false teaching. So this text, and here's the key, this text is really a text about discernment and specifically when it comes to the word that is taught. This is a major concern. This was a major concern of Paul for this young church at Thessalonica. You remember this church under the pressures of persecution and the false teaching that Christ had already returned These believers had lost their roadmap. They were believing the false reports. But the question is, why did this happen? How did they get to such a state as this? How do we get to such a state as that? To where we've lost our roadmap. We have no discernment. Let me suggest a few reasons. And these are equally true, whether you're talking about the first century church or the 21st century church. But I want to apply it just to the 21st century church. We can consider these universal reasons, but the main one is this. A weak and a vague theology. A weak and a vague theology. Where are the Bereans today? Where are they? Where are the Luthers? Where are the Calvins, the Whitfields, the Spurgeons? Where have they gone? You see it, don't you? There is a notable lack, even an absence in churches today of these kind of, of men. 
Christians are no longer able to discuss the rich theology of the Bible. The average Christian today, their theology is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the extent. Pulpits across America are filled with CEOs, facilitators, gifted speakers, and compelling storytellers. But my question is, where are those who labor hard in the word? Where have they gone? Those whose desire is for the approval of God, not men. Those who accurately handle the word of truth. Those who cut it straight, as Paul would say. Paul, in warning Timothy, says this in 2 Timothy 2. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. Folks, the problem in our pulpits today is that they are filled with nothing more than Hymenaeuses and Philetuses. They've strayed from the truth, assuming they knew the truth, and their teaching has spread like gangrene. It's infectious, and it's having an impact on the entire body of Christ. And so Paul says, abstain from it, from these men and from their teaching. Run from, running from something bad or evil is certainly one acceptable way to fight error. That's what Paul is saying here. Run from these things. It's passive in a, in a sense, but still, it's a good one. It's a, it's a biblical one. It's a good way to do that. But there are other ways that we can actively battle air because of lack of discernment. And two things I'm going to suggest to you. Number one is we have to have clarity and we have to have precision when it comes to our theology, when it comes to our understanding of scriptures. Now, you're familiar with these words, clarity. It just means to be clear or to be transparent. So when you explain something to someone about the Bible, do they understand what you're saying? Do you make it clear so that they can understand that particular doctrine? Well, if you do, that's clarity. And then precision, which is an exactness or to be meticulous uh, about something. So we need those two things. We need clarity. We need precision. So I'm going to give you three ways to develop clarity and precision. Now, we're still on point number one. If you're, if you're an outline person, we're still on point one, the vague and weak theology. But this is sort of a sub point underneath it. And these are kind of like application points. I know applications are supposed to be at the end, but this is a good spot for this. So I'm gonna, we're going to go with it here. So three ways to develop clarity and precision. Number one, commit yourself to the authority of the scriptures. Commit yourself to the authority of the scriptures. Peter says in 2 Peter, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, or a better translation is complete, completely equipped for every good work. Peter was committed to the authority of the word. Paul was committed to the authority of the word. And it isn't simply an authority. It is the authority. 
not one of many, the authority for Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible is a science book. And with all the formulas and with all the equations to answer all the difficult questions that science may have. But I can assure you of this, that when the Bible speaks about matters of science, it speaks with clarity, it speaks with precision, and it speaks with accuracy. It is, it is completely authoritative and completely truthful. Secondly, Number one, commit yourself to the authority of scriptures. Number two, commit yourself to building strong biblical convictions. This is sort of the outflow of that first one. So it begins with the first, having uh, a a biblical conviction of, of the authority of scripture. And then as a result... Your, your submission to the Bible, you now begin to build convictions. For example, convictions like this, that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that he is God in human flesh, born of a virgin, and that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, can a person be saved. Convictions like the sanctity of human life. It begins at conception, not birth. Convictions like marriage that is exclusively between a man and a woman. Convictions like the authorship of the Bible. How the Bible preserves the linguistic characteristics of the writers and yet preserves the perfection and maintains that perfection of the Holy Spirit. That that sort of mystical coming together of those two things. And on and on and on. This is part of the sanctifying work of grace in your heart. God is maturing you in your convictions and in your life and in your actions and in your speech for the purpose of reflecting Christ. Thirdly, commit to praying for courage to act on those convictions. A conviction of the authority of Scripture, a conviction of biblical um, Biblical doctrines and then the courage to act on that. Deuteronomy 31 says this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Psalm 27 verse 1 says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, be on the alert, stand firm in your faith, act like men and be strong. If you are committed to the authority of the Bible and your studies lead you to deep convictions and trust it to the Lord, he will strengthen you. He will give you courage in your time of testing. So listen, do you have a doctrine of the deity of Jesus Good. So when someone comes along and says that Jesus was a great man or Jesus was a was a great teacher, but not fully divine, then you what? You reject it. You reject it. Do you have a doctrine that says that Jesus is the only way to the father? Awesome. So when someone comes along and says to you that you must believe in Jesus, plus you must do this work or you must be a part of this certain theological camp, then you run from it. And what about justification? Does your theology teach that you are justified by faith alone 
fantastic. Again, when someone comes along or a person and says that you, that you can be made just even without hearing the gospel, people, people in tribes of Africa, you can be made just without hearing the gospel. Run from it. Run from it. Denounce it. You know, oftentimes when we interview new members, they comment about how long and detailed our statement of faith is. Let me tell you why it is this way. It's not because we enjoy writing lengthy documents. Trust me, it is not that. It's because a right theology demands precision and clarity. We have to be precise about what we believe. We don't want people wondering what we believe about the Trinity, what we believe about salvation or justification or the church or judgment or any of those topics. It's that important. Yeah, doctrine does matter. It really does. It matters a lot. Weak and vague theology is the first reason the church lacks discernment. Okay, now, now we're back on course. Point number two. Point number two, an unwillingness to debate the truth. An unwillingness to debate the truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, when you remove polemics, that's this vigorous debate. When you remove polemics from the church, the church dies. Serious, ongoing, and healthy debate in the church is good for the church. It's good for the church. Now, I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear me loud and clear. I am not talking about those who like a good argument. That's not what we're talking about. Or those who will die on a thousand hills. Where every doctrine is essential, they would say. That would include things like church governance, uh, eschatology, Bible translations, length of sermons. That's not the kind of debate we're talking about. But on the other hand, you can't run from disagreements and potential debates either simply because, quote, everyone has a right to their own opinion. Or you just want everyone to get along. You hear folks say this all of the time. The church is not relevant. It's all doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. It seems like they're so nitpicky about that. And yet, Lloyd-Jones says, if you aren't willing to stand up, explain, and defend doctrines, then your church will die. This may surprise you, but the Bible is actually very precise. It is nitpicky. Genesis 2. You have two trees. Eat from one, leave the other one alone. Matthew 7, two gates, the narrow gate, the wide gate. The Bible is always presenting the reader with two choices, God's way or man's way. You, you are either in the kingdom or you're outside the kingdom. You are either saved from hell or you're damned to it. Two choices and only two choices, truth or error, life or death. You hear people say this all the time. Well, that passage can mean several things. No, it cannot. It only has one meaning and one meaning only because there is only one author, right? It's the Holy Spirit. He had one intent when, he, when, when that scripture was penned. 
And while there may be different applications, there is still one meaning and one meaning only. I don't know about you, but I have very little tolerance for discussions which begin with a statement like this. So what does that passage mean to you? You know what? I don't care what it means to you. It doesn't matter what it means to you. The only thing that matters is what did it mean when God wrote it? It has one meaning, one author. Because if it has multiple meanings, then it's not God's truth. It's man's truth. And you have to decide, is it going to be God's truth or will it be man's? The Bible is clear, crystal clear about this. In Psalm 119, the writer says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. Discernment then can only thrive when you have an environment of doctrinal absolutes. I'm going to say that one again. Discernment in the church can only thrive when you have an environment of doctrinal absolutes. In Paul's letter to Titus, he says in chapter 1, speaking to the elders, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that you will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, you understand that not only is this a function of the elders, it is a necessity that it be present. It is an absolute requirement. If the elders in a church don't see this as one of their primary ways of protecting the flock, then you will have a church that lacks discernment. John MacArthur says this, we are in the refutation business as well as the affirmation business. We refute error, but we affirm the truth. And the only hope for a discerning church is through confrontation, a clear understanding of black and white, right and wrong, truth and error. But there's a third way. There's a third reason the church often lacks discernment. And it's this. It's this emphasis, this overwhelming emphasis on the image of the church, on the image of the preacher, this, this self-image. You hear this all the time. Churches want to brand their self a certain way. They want to market their self uh, a certain way. What image do we want to project to the world? Their thinking goes like this. We have to win their approval so that they'll like us. This becomes the key to their evangelism. Acceptance. This is what has driven the seeker-sensitive movement for years. Books like Seeker-Sensitive Strategies and Starting a Seeker-Sensitive Service are just the latest versions of the classic book, The Purpose Driven Church, written by Rick Warren. By the way, Robert Schuller was the father of all of them. All of them are designed to make the seeker, the unbeliever, feel more comfortable, even, even if it means compromising doctrine and, listen, our doxology. In other words, doctrine is no longer front and center. It's removed from the preaching, and listen, it's removed from the singing. Rich theological songs are replaced by catchy tunes and vague lyrics, all for the express purpose of making the unbeliever feel less intimidated, less threatened, 
and more comfortable. Now look, if you're a believer, uh, excuse me, if you are an unbeliever and you are visiting our church, we want you to feel welcomed. In fact, if you don't feel welcomed by us, then shame on us, because you should be. Your first impression of us ought to be that of warm and friendly. But listen, here's the reality of the purpose for this gathering, for us as believers. As a body of professing believers, we are here for two reasons. Number one, to give the Lord, our Savior, worship, honor, and praise for his grace in saving us. That's one. Number two, to encourage one another in our Christian walk to be conformed into the image of Christ. Our purpose is not to impress the world or to win their approval. Not to be cliche or cute, but our audience is God. It's not the world. We seek his approval and his approval only. So getting back to this idea of self-image The thought goes something like this. Create a church service, create an environment that is non-threatening, in particular in areas of doctrine and music. But specifically when it comes to preaching, sermons are laced in with funny stories, engaging dialogue with gifted speakers who look and dress more like a college kid going bar hopping. There is an atmosphere that is created that feels more like a concert. It feels more like a TED talk than it does anything else. Sin is never confronted. Repentance is rarely, if ever, spoken about. Absolute truth is off the table. Why? Because this makes people feel uncomfortable. And if they're uncomfortable, they might not like us. And if they don't like us, they won't come back. Remove the offenses. Redefine the church. Rebrand the church. And by the way, baptism and Lord's Supper, those are pushed aside. Prayers are no longer pastoral. They're simply transitions from one thing to another on the stage. Church becomes nothing more than a collection of entertainment, psychology, counseling, pep talks, all wrapped into one. This becomes their evangelistic mode to get people to like them so that they can hear some encouraging words from Jesus and so that what? They'll like him too. And yet, this is not how people are saved. People are saved by what? By hearing the gospel. By understanding that their sins have offended a holy God. And that their only hope is found in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if they repent and place their hope in the finished work of Christ, then they will be saved. Influence saves no one. Image saves no one. There is no back door to heaven, no easy road. Jesus said the gate is wide that leads to destruction, and many will define it or will find it. So, church, be discerning. Getting the world to like you is not evangelism. Now, I know Jesus said, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father in heaven. But that isn't enough. They have to hear the gospel. They have to hear the gospel. And submit themselves to it. Jesus preached repentance. And they liked him. 
They hated him. The first time he opened the scriptures and preached, you know what they did? They walked him to the edge of a cliff to push him off the first time. The apostles were martyred for that message as well. And countless others, thousands upon thousands, who gave their lives for believing the true gospel. If they like us, they'll like Jesus? Seriously? That's not the gospel, folks. Let me give you a fourth reason why there is this lack of discernment in the church. First one, weak theology. Second one, unwillingness to debate the truth. Third one, the emphasis, the overemphasis on self-image. And then fourthly, just the inability to correctly interpret Scripture. Inability to correctly interpret Scripture. This and I, I got to confess, this is a hot button for me for a couple of reasons. Number one, so many Christians are being led down the path of false teaching. They're basing their eternity on the errors of their pastors. I'm not not talking about differences of interpretation in areas that I mentioned earlier, like end times or even certain Christian liberties. No doubt these are important, but they aren't areas that we all have to come to complete agreement on. In other words, they aren't gospel issues. They aren't issues that if, if we disagree on those issues, one of us is going to end up in hell. Or both. So you understand what I mean, right? But when it comes to areas like the person and work of Christ, the holy demands of God, his sinlessness, our sinfulness, the atonement, salvation by grace alone, these you cannot get wrong. There is no room for error. You must interpret these correctly. But the second reason this is so important and maybe this just speaks to me especially, is because God will judge me based on how I interpret a text. Isn't that what James said? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such will occur a stricter judgment. This is a big deal. I I, I do not want that hanging over my head. I want to follow the command of Paul who said this, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And yet you hear preachers whose sermons are what we might call Saturday night specials. You know what those are, right? They wait for a feeling from the Holy Spirit, supposedly, and oftentimes on a Saturday night, to tell them what they're going to preach that next morning. In reality, it's nothing more than laziness. Plain and simple. And yet they say, well, I want my messages to be fresh. Listen to me. Ad-libbing your way on a Sunday morning in the pulpit is not a way to be fresh. It is a way to come to the wrong interpretation, though, of Scripture. You will do that. I really do think that a large part of the problem is laziness, as I just mentioned. Preachers no longer have patience to sit in their studies and wrestle with the text anymore. They jump to the application that they're so eager to share. They completely jump over the meaning of the text. They ignore, they ignore what the Holy Spirit intended for us to understand from that text. 
One well-known charismatic teacher by the name of Bill Heyman, this has been years ago now, says this. He says, ignore reason, logic, and the senses when attempting to discern the truth. Are you kidding me? He says this. The spirit reaction begins deep within our being, somewhere in the upper abdominal area. Do you hear what he's saying? If you want to know the truth, it begins with a feeling somewhere in your stomach. So, I guess when you get that feeling in your stomach, don't take a Tums, you might quench the spirit. You know, this is, this is so ridiculous. When I read that, there was a word that came to mind for me. Idiocy. This is idiocy. The way to interpret Scripture is not from upper abdominal gas pains. It comes from the careful examination of the text and the context. That's what Luther did. That's what Calvin did in their battles against the Roman Catholic Church. But you know what the irony is? The irony today is that we're not confronting the heirs of the Roman Catholic Church like Luther did in his days. We're confronting the heirs of the Protestant Church, of us, us. People don't fall into error because they want to. It's because of laziness. It's because of carelessness. It's because of foolishness. Look, the number one reason, the number one rule when you hunt is this. You better know your target. Know your target. You better make sure that what you're shooting at is exactly what you intended to shoot at. You may want to shoot a deer, but you end up shooting your neighbor's cow. Know your target. Same is true with the interpretation of Scripture. If your intent is to properly and accurately handle God's Word, for heaven's sakes, don't shoot the cow. And yet people will defend these false teachers and they quote verses like this. First Chronicles 16. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Listen to me. If these men or women were God's anointed ones, they wouldn't be teaching this gross error. Right? Church, now like never before is the time when we must be discerning. We must. All right. Well, let me, let me just draw out some applications. How can you and I as Christians become discerning Christians? I gave you a few earlier at the beginning of the message. Let's just add to those. Number one is desire. Desire. A desire to be discerning. You, you have to want it in the beginning. But to be fair, it's really not just desire. It's beyond that. The real question is how bad do you want it? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to get it. How important is it to you? I read this out of Proverbs 2 earlier. My son, if, if you will receive my words and treasure my commands within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline, incline your heart to understanding. So you have to treasure it, he says. You have to treasure God's word. You have to pay attention to the wisdom and then point your heart in seeking understanding. Listen, one of the best ways that you and I can honor God is by honoring his word, by treasuring his word, by being wise in his word and by desiring to understand it. And again, as he continues in that, 
in that section in Proverbs 3, he says, but if you cry for discernment and if you lift your voice for understanding and if you seek her as silver and if you search for her as for hidden treasure, verse 5, then, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of wisdom. But you have to do the other stuff first. There must be a genuine effort if you are to learn discernment. You don't win races without running them. If you're content with minimal knowledge, then discernment will not be yours. If vague theology is okay by you, then you'll never understand the deep theology of God. Discernment is not, discernment is not some kind of low-hanging fruit. You have to desire it. You have to work for it. But secondly, not only desire it, pray for it. Pray for it. James says in chapter one, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask of God. Ask him who gives to all meagerly, generously, and without reproach. And it will be given to him, he says. Chapter four of James says, you do not have because you do not what? Ask. Ask. God, the Holy Spirit, has promised to illuminate the truth of his word to us. But you must ask. Ask him. Psalm 119, verse 27 says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. Verse 125, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. And then verse 66, teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Believing and trusting the Lord is the start. You must have a genuine desire to know, but you must ask. Thirdly, associate. Associate. In other words, hang out with people who are discerning. Associate with these kinds of people. Yeah, I know. You might become a little annoying from time to time, but it's worth it, isn't it? Yeah. It's a small price to pay to gain wisdom. 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 10, says that one of the spiritual gifts is the distinguishing of spirits. It's just another way to say discerning or discernment. It's a spiritual gift. You want to be discerning in the scriptures? Then associate with those who demonstrate that gift. Again, speaking to the leadership, I believe that this is one of the gifts of elders and pastors. It is not optional. It is required. It is required. Again, quoting Titus again, he says, holding fast the faithful words so that you will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. We, we are the watchdogs of the church. The, the image I have in my mind is we're the Doberman pinchers behind the fence. You crawl over that fence, you're going to get bit. Learn from others how to identify subtleties in false teaching. Hebrews 5 says solid food is for the mature because of practice they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Did you notice the language in that? It's from practice and training that you learn to discern. 
This, by the way, is why it is so important to know your leadership when choosing a church. Listen to them as they teach. Listen to them as they preach. Is there wisdom in their words? Then hang on them. Learn from them. And at the same time, being a faithful Berean. And examine the scriptures for yourself. Associate with them. Number four. So we start with a desire, right? A desire to know, a hunger for the truth. And then we pray to that end. And we ask God to give us the desire and the wisdom for that area. And then we associate with those who have that gift. And then fourthly, depend. Depend on the Holy Spirit. In 1 John chapter 2, we read this. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know. He tells them. John is telling them, I didn't write you because you didn't know. I wrote you because you do know. And you know because the Spirit of God has taken up residence in you. I mean, that's really good news. Verse 27, John says, you received from him the anointing which abides in you. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So up till now, these four points that I've made... They're somewhat passive. Sooner or later, though, you got to do the hard work. And that's point number five. Last one. Study. Study. You must diligently study. Read the word. Meditate on the word. Desire to know the truth. Pray to that end. Associate with the gifted, depend on the Holy Spirit, but study, study. Listen, don't make flashy preachers your heroes. Draw yourself to the discerning ones. Look, your desire is to worship God in spirit and in truth, right? You want not just to know about him. You want to really know him. You desire the truth even when it's not culturally popular and even when it's not popular in the church. And you want to show genuine love for fellow believers, right? All of which are noble and good and right. Let me close you with with some encouraging words from the scriptures. Again, in Psalm 119, The writer says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. In Ezra chapter 7, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's just another way to say, be discerning. But you have to have your minds renewed. 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, Peter says, put aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, you have